Well, good morning and Merry Christmas. It is so good to be with you here. Our first Texas Christmas. So nice of you to arrange snow. That was a real nice blessing. My wife was beside herself. She just kept saying, They said it never snows here, but it's snowing. So exciting. Well, anyway, we're going to be concluding our Christmas series, Navidad, Why Jesus' Birth Still Matters. We welcome you if you're here for the first time, and we say hello to all of our friends that are traveling. We know they wouldn't dare miss a service, so we know they're watching. At least that's what I tell myself. Turn, if you will, to Luke chapter 2. We've already seen three reasons why Jesus' birth still matters, even today, even when people get excited about Christmas, but for the wrong reasons. And sometimes it's easy to feel like, does the core of Christmas still have any relevance to people? Do people still care about the reason for Christmas? And especially if you take a look at how people live and the things they say, some of the animosity that's directed toward the church, you can wonder, is it still relevant? And we have seen that, yes, it is. It always has been and it always will be for a number of reasons. The first is light. Christmas represents light. We saw that 800 years before Jesus came on the scene, a prophet named Isaiah was revealed or had revealed to him by God that in a place of darkness, light would shine. In specific, it was referencing the district, the, the place of the, of the outsiders. The, the Jews called them goyim. We refer to them today as Gentile, non-Jews. That in a place that had normally been or previously been the homeland of the Jews, that was taken over by the Gentiles during the Assyrian conquest, part of God's judgment on his people for their incessant idolatry and wickedness. But that God spoke through Isaiah and said, one day a light would come to that very area that seems God-forsaken. It was not, and God would send light to shine. And we saw in our second week that that light would come in the form of a small child. A young virgin is miraculously given the child, the one that every God-fearing Jew knew about, that had been prophesied all the way back to the time of David, that one day one of his offspring would sit on the throne and would come to bring deliverance for Israel. And that joy was bundled up within Mary. We saw in week three that that child would bring peace. And these are all things, light, joy, peace. These are things that are missing from our culture even today. And it's funny, I went to Walmart with our youth group the other day, my youngest son and I, and Walmart's a crazy place at Christmas. If you've ever been there, it, it's, I mean, it's a crazy place 365, but it's a real crazy place at Christmas. 
And you see all these people hustling and bustling and fighting over toys and trying to get their stuff picked out at the last minute. It's crazy cold outside. And you're in there. And the one thing you don't see much of is joy. The only guy the entire evening that looked to be smiling was the guy that was ringing the bell for the Salvation Army out front. We don't have a lot of joy, even at Christmas in this country. We certainly don't have any light, and we don't have much peace. And that's why Christmas will always be relevant. Well, today we're going to take a look at the fourth reason, and that is hope. Christmas represents hope, and that is in very short supply. So turn, if you will, to the Gospel of Luke. We're going to pick right up where we left off last week. We've already seen that when Mary and Joseph went to the temple 40 days after Jesus had been born, they went to fulfill all of the religious rites that any God-fearing Jewish couple would. And while they were there, they met a real crazy stranger, a guy by the name of Simeon, who essentially comes up, takes the child, pronounces a blessing over him, announces that he is, in fact, the promised Messiah, begins telling Mary about what the future was going to hold concerning this child. And then right after Simeon apparently gives the baby back and goes about his business, along comes somebody else, a woman. And she takes the child as well and continues speaking on behalf of God, which brings us to our passage, Luke 2, starting at verse 36. And we're going to read uh, 36 and 37 together here. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. Okay. So Simeon finishes up speaking about the child. He gently hands Jesus back to Mary and Joseph, who were probably sitting there with their heads spinning. And just as he's walking off and they're trying to process it, you know, as a couple, especially as a young couple, ever have something happen, but you can't really talk about it right then? You kind of have to wait till you have a minute, and then as soon as that person's gone, you, you turn, can you believe it? I can't believe it. What, what was with that old guy? And they're having that conversation, I have no doubt, and here comes someone else. Hi. My name is Anna. We're told she was a prophetess, which is interesting. Hebrew culture was very patriarchal, which is another way of saying it was very man-centered. And women weren't held in very high regard. And yet, despite that, we see throughout the Scripture that God uses women for a lot of different things, which kind of cut across the culture sometimes. And here we see that He uses this woman as a prophetess. It means basically that she was someone who was able to sort of speak on behalf of God, to kind of reveal God's will in a number of ways. And we see in the Scripture that there were quite a few female prophets. The first one that we read about is Miriam, 
who was Moses' sister in Exodus 15. We also see there was a prophetess named Deborah who served as Israel's judge in Judges 4. There was a woman named Huldah that we don't know that much about. Most theologians suspect that she might have been Jeremiah's aunt. Jeremiah was also a prophet. We read about her in 2 Kings 22 and in Jeremiah 32. And we also see that Philip the evangelist had some daughters who were also prophetesses in Acts chapter 21. Now, having said that, we need to make sure that we keep it in context that no prophet in the Old Testament, male or female, that, that, that the office of prophet or the work of a prophet, it never negated, it never superseded the formal male authority of either the Levitical priesthood or the apostolic office. But sometimes those two roles did overlap. For example, with Samuel, we see that Samuel was both a Levitical priest and he was also a prophet, someone who spoke on behalf of God, that God would reveal things to. We also see that Paul was both an apostle, a leader in the New Testament church, and he was also a prophet. And moreover, we see that being a prophet didn't always involve new revelation, new information from, from God. Sometimes it just involved taking previous information that had been given and putting a new light on it. For example, Isaiah prophesied something in Isaiah 7.14 about a virgin who would one day give birth, and that would be assigned to the king at that time. Well, Matthew later on takes that same prophecy and reapplies it to Mary and Jesus. Now, this prophetess, we see her name was Anna. Anna was just a Greek translation of a Hebrew name. The Hebrew name may be a little familiar to you, Hannah. And Hannah in Hebrew means grace, unmerited favor. Now let's move on, and it says that she was the daughter of a guy named Phanuel who was from the tribe of Asher. Why does Luke include this? It's real important. The ten tribes of we've already learned, if we've gone through the series here, we've already learned that the ten tribes of Israel were essentially conquered a long time ago, about 722 years before Jesus was born. They were conquered by the Assyrians because God decided to judge them for their wickedness. And when they were conquered, they were carried off as slaves into all different kinds of places in the Assyrian Empire. And really, as a whole, they never returned to Israel, which is why we refer to them today as the lost tribes of Israel. And most of the time, we assume that because those tribes were lost that that was the end of them, that those ten northern tribes ceased to exist. But what's really interesting is that we're told that this woman was from the tribe of Asher. Asher was one of the ten tribes. As a matter of fact, their territorial land was right at the top of Israel, in the northwest corner, right on the Mediterranean coast. And they were one of the first ones that the Assyrians came through and slaughtered and carried off into captivity. And yet somehow... Anna's forefathers, foremothers, survived and were still in the land. How is that possible? Well, there's a number of possibilities. One, maybe they were staying with someone else when the attack came. I mean, that would be the natural inclination of someone when attack came, would be to flee. Jesus warned the Jews in Jerusalem that when the attack comes on that city, to flee. 
So that's possible that they had her parents or grandparents or great-grandparents going back several generations had just fled and then come back once things dial back. Another is that maybe her family was left behind because they were very poor. And the Assyrians had left the poorest of the poor behind in order to take care of the crops and the livestock. But whatever the case, what we see is, is in the first century, when Jesus was born, there were still little tiny pockets of survivors from the northern ten tribes. Why is that important? Well, we're told that God would send the Messiah for all of his people, which meant there had to be a little remnant here and there. What did we also learn from this? Well, I think a couple of things. First of all, God sent his son. He sent the Christ child to this time in history. And he wanted some people on the scene who could bear witness to it. And so we see that there were men who were aware of the Christ child being born. We see there were women who were aware of the Christ child being born, who were both waiting. We also see that there were representatives from the southern tribes of Judah, Simeon, he was from Jerusalem. And we see there were representatives from the northern tribes, Anna, who was from the tribe of Asher. What it tells you is, is that when God is doing something, there are always little pockets, little remnants of faithful believers. Even when it looks like they've all been wiped out, they're all gone. That is a great encouragement to me today because when I look at the church today, it kind of feels like, oh, you almost got away, baby. It kind of feels like we're perishing, like there's not much left. But what we see is, no, that's never the case. God always has a faithful remnant. And he will reveal to them what he's doing. Next, we see that she was advanced in years. In Greek, in the original language that, that Luke was written, there's a couple of ways you can interpret the line where it says she was a widow until she was 84. It could mean just literally that, that she was 84 years old at the time that this event happened, and she had been a widow uh, after being married for seven years, she'd been a widow until she was 84. But it could also mean that she'd been a widow for 84 years, which would make her somewhere in the vicinity of 100. Now, we don't really know which one it is, but what we do know is this. Here's Anna. Listen, 84 is old. I don't care what generation you're talking about. Sorry, Mom, but it is, okay? It's, it's just, and I hope I make it to 84. But here's a woman... Now, maybe she's 84, maybe she's 100. That would have really been old. But no matter what the case is, she's still involved in serving the Lord. She's still focused on what God wants to do. She hasn't retired. She hasn't, you know, jumped back and said, let the young people do it. She's still neck deep in the work of God. Verse 37, or excuse me, moving on in, in verse 37. It says that she was a widow, which... We're told that she'd only been married for a short time, about seven years, which means she was probably in her early 20s when she was widowed. And she never remarried. I got to tell you, that's very, very unusual for this era. Most of the time, because it was such a patriarchal culture, women would remarry, and yet she doesn't. She spends the bulk of her life unmarried. Why? Well, there's two possibilities. One, 
it's possible that her first husband was just the love of her life. That happens sometimes, believe it or not, even in a cynical world today. That he was just the one. They had imprinted like wolves. And they're just, after that, she just, no, there's never going to be another guy that's going to be able to live up to him. Guys, how would you like to have your wife think that about you? The other possibility is that after her husband died, she just decided that with the rest of her years, she was going to invest it in serving the Lord. And that seems to be indicated from the text here. Paul talked about that in 1 Corinthians 7. He talked about how sometimes, especially when we live in difficult times, it's best to stay single because then you don't have the concerns of being married and then you can focus all your effort on serving the Lord. I believe you have to have a special spiritual gift to do that. I don't think it's for everybody, and even Paul says that. But I do think there are certain people that are really just focused on serving the Lord and, and they don't have a burning need to get married. And I think it's a shame sometimes that we in the church don't always treat those people with the respect they deserve. We're always trying to marry them off. We're always trying to matchmake with them. Sometimes it's better to let people serve the Lord in the condition that they're in. And it says that she did not depart from the temple. That could mean a couple of things. It could mean that she actually lived on the temple grounds. Was that possible? Yeah, believe it or not, in the temple of Jerusalem, there were residences and it's possible that because she was a servant, because she was a prophetess, that she was allowed to live there. But I think that what the phrase is actually indicating is, is that basically it means she didn't necessarily live there, but she spent a lot of time there. She stayed at the temple every moment that she had spare because she wanted to worship. And we're told also that she was fasting and praying. That part of her service at the temple wasn't just prophesying, but it was fasting and praying. What does that mean? Well, listen, fasting and prayer in the Christian faith is a very specific thing. It usually indicates a longing for something, wanting something, looking to God for something. We fast and we pray when we're really desperate for something. So what was she desperate for? Verse 38. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of Him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Israel. Okay. So she's been at the temple. She's there all the time. I find it interesting that with Simeon, he's throughout the city. He'd been told that he would see the Messiah, recognize him, and it would happen before he died. And so this guy is scouring Jerusalem looking for this baby. But Anna takes a different tact. Anna just decides, if the Messiah is going to come, he's got to come here sooner or later. And so she just sort of sits there at the temple waiting for him. And when the time is right, it says, at that very hour, God directs her to Mary and Joseph. Now, once again, Mary and Joseph didn't have a glow about them. They didn't walk in carrying a manger scene, you know, the way we see Mary and Joseph today. They were just an average Jewish couple with a tiny baby that was no more distinguishable from any other baby. They just walk in. But Anna suddenly knows, just like Simeon did, this is the one. This is the one. And it says that she gave thanks to God as soon as she encounters Mary and Joseph. Now, unlike Simeon, we don't have any details as to the conversation between them, 
as to whether or not she held the baby, nothing. All we know is that God leads her to them, and immediately she starts giving thanks to him for doing so. Whatever their conversation was, it had to involve the fact, very similar to Simeon, that she recognized, here he is. Even as a tiny baby, she recognizes, this is our hope. This is the one we've been waiting for. And as a result, she goes and she begins to speak about him. And here we see a parallel with the shepherds. Remember the story of the shepherds? They have this angelic encounter in the middle of a field outside of Bethlehem. Tells them to go to the city. They go. Tells them what to look for. They look. They finally find Mary, Joseph, and the Christ child. And they worship. And then what do they do immediately afterward? They go and they start sharing with people about what they had seen. Same thing with Anna. She sees the Christ, and then she can't help but begin to tell other people about what she has encountered. And I thought about that. Do you know that when you really believe something is true, and when you really know that that truth is important, and when you really know that the people on the outside need to hear that truth, then you cannot help but share it. Even if it's controversial. Even if people aren't going to believe you. Even if it's going to get you in trouble, make you look foolish, damage relationships, cost you financially. If you really believe it's true, and you really know it's important, and you really know it's needed, then you have to go and share it. Bombs away. And that's what she did. And if we don't do that, if we know those things are true, and we still don't tell people, that says something about us. Really, it says either A, we're not convinced that it's true, B, we're afraid, or C, we're ashamed. Who did she go speak to? Here's what's real fascinating. She went to go speak to all who were waiting. Isn't that interesting? What does she mean by that? Or what, what does that mean by that? It means that there were people, only a handful, remember? I mean, of all the people in Jerusalem, how many recognize the Christ child when he arrives? Two. Only two. Two which means really only those two were in the right place at the right time looking for him, which means the vast majority of people weren't. They were going about their daily lives disinterested. We have interest in this story today. We've created a whole holiday around it. But the irony is, is that the people of this time couldn't care less. They didn't know who Jesus was. They didn't care who Jesus was. But Anna did, Simeon did, and there were a handful of others. And so who did Anna go to first? The people that she knew were waiting. The people she knew would listen. She went to them. She took hope to the hoping. I love that. I love that. You know, I, I think that a lot of times... 
Sometimes we overcomplicate sharing this story with people, and by that I mean the gospel. We always think that it's going to involve, okay, well, I'll have to go into a prison and talk to people that are... Yeah, maybe. But you know, sometimes the easiest thing to do is to start with the people who will listen to you. Even if it's only a small handful, start there and then branch out. Don't make it this big, intimidating thing, and therefore you never say a word. Start with the people who listen and move out from there. And what were these people hoping for? They were hoping for the redemption of Jerusalem. In other words, they were hoping for the Messiah. It is interesting that it says the redemption of Jerusalem. Why doesn't it say the redemption of Israel or the redemption of uh, the Jews, or, or some other broader term. Why does it just say Jerusalem? Well, I discovered that this is a figure of speech that is known as a synecdoche. If anybody here knows what a synecdoche is, I'll eat my hat. You're probably an English major, okay? A synecdoche is basically a, it's a figure of speech. It's where we take something that's only part of the whole and use it to speak of a greater whole. Let me give you an example because you use them all the time. Sometimes you might say, you know what? I went down to the rental agency and I picked up a set of wheels. If somebody said that to you, would you know what they were talking about? Of course you would. They went down and got a car, right? You wouldn't expect them to come rolling four tires up. You would think, oh yeah, they went and got a car. And yet it only says wheels, right? Or maybe somebody would say, um, Give us this day our daily bread. Is it just talking about bread? No, it's talking about food in general. Or let's say somebody said, you know, I, I, I finally, I spoke to my girlfriend and I asked for her hand in marriage. Now, you wouldn't expect that he just asked the hand to marry him, right? You, you want the whole girl, right? Those are synecdoches. So when it says that it was, they were waiting for the, the redemption of Jerusalem, it just means basically wherever God's people are. That's who she went to speak to. Verse 39. And when they, speaking to Mary and Joseph, had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. Again, they performed everything according to the law because they were God-fearing Jews. They were trying to please God. And that's why God picked them. And it says that they returned to Galilee. Now, what's interesting is that here in Luke, he doesn't mention some of the aspects of the story that Matthew does. Because we know from Matthew that there were a few things that happened in between this time and the time that they returned back to Galilee, in other words, Nazareth, their hometown. First of all, Luke doesn't mention the visit of the Magi, right? He never says anything about that. Luke doesn't mention uh, the murderous plot of Herod that resulted from the Magi's visit. Luke doesn't mention that God warned Joseph, take your wife and your child and flee to Egypt because Herod is looking to kill all of the male children two years and younger. Luke doesn't mention that they stayed in Egypt for a time. Now, it's not likely that they stayed in Egypt for a long time. They just stayed long enough for Herod to die, which means probably just a few weeks, maybe a couple of months. And then they came back to Israel. Then they went back to Nazareth. So the stories don't conflict with one another. It's just that Luke doesn't throw in all the details that Matthew does. Verse 40. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. This is, I think, the most mind-boggling sentence 
in the nativity story that Jesus had to grow up. You ever think about that? Jesus was a child, and he had to grow up. He had to learn the Hebrew alphabet. He had to learn to read. Then he read the scriptures. He had to grow up physically. He was a real baby. Now, he was unique, but he still had to go through all of the things that regular people go through. And the only way you can really wrap your mind around that and the fusion between God and humanity and how that possibly could work itself out, I just you read Philippians chapter 2 where, where Paul kind of talks about that, about how that happened and what Jesus had to do to make that happen and then sort of try to incorporate it that way. But it says that he was filled with wisdom. Here's a nuance of that. Jesus was unique. He was unique in his insight. Even when he's young, we're told that when he's 12, he wanders off into the temple in Jerusalem when his parents were there for another visit, and he starts schooling the priests. So not every 12-year-old could do that. I love 12-year-olds, but I can't sit there and listen to them pontificate for hours. So he was a little bit unique. He had amazing... He was also unique in his morality. He didn't sin. And yet, okay, yet... Even despite the fact that he was unique, there was nothing so odd or otherworldly about him that it caused other people to sort of be afraid or to be fixated on him. What's wrong with him? Or to freak out. It's interesting. There's a story that's told later on in Matthew chapter 13 where Jesus goes back to his hometown after he started his public ministry. He goes back into Nazareth. He doesn't necessarily receive a warm welcome. That's where he makes his statement, a prophet is without honor in his own country. But what's interesting is when he goes back, he starts doing all the things he'd been doing in Galilee. He starts teaching like nobody else has ever taught and confounding the Jewish leaders. And he starts doing miracles. And what's the reaction of the people of the community? Do they say, I knew there was something weird about that kid. I knew it all along. No, They're astounded. You know what they say about Jesus? Can you figure this out? It's just the carpenter's son. Where did he learn how to do all this stuff? What does that tell you? It tells you that it is entirely possible to lead a God-pleasing life, a God-empowered life, and yet not be so spiritually aloof or so strange that other people can't relate to you. Isn't it fascinating that Jesus could do all of the things that he could do, and yet people weren't really freaked out by him? Matter of fact, we read in Matthew 4.25 that the crowds swarmed to him. I think the more we're like Christ, the more attractive to outsiders we'll be. Now, there'll be some who'll already have their agendas, who don't want to hear from God because It offends them because it conflicts with their lifestyle. But the people who are open-minded and open-hearted will always be drawn to people who try to be like Christ. And because of it, we're told the favor of God was upon him. Jesus always sought to please his Father. He never sought to please himself. He was one of the most unselfish individuals ever. He always thought of others. First, he thought of his Father, always, first and foremost. What does God want me to do? And then he thought about other people. 
He never put himself first. What about me? What about my needs? Hey, get off of me. I need some time. He was always giving, always seeking to serve and to please. And because of it, we're told, it says in the ESV, the favor of God was upon him, but in Greek, the word is charis. Those of you who've been Christians for a while, you know what that word means. It means grace, unmerited favor. The grace of God was always on Jesus. Now, not the kind of grace that you and I need. We need grace because we're sinful, so we need forgiveness. Jesus didn't need that kind of grace, but he did receive the grace of freedom and favor and fullness in life. It's another way of saying that God just smiled on him and took him right where he wanted to be. All right. What can we learn about hope from Anna? Because, boy, we sure could use some hope. And you know what I find? We always tend to, to say that people have no hope. We live in a hopeless world and they have no hope. And I, and I get what you mean by that. And I would agree to a certain extent. But you know what I find is everybody has hope. Everybody does. You can't function in life without hope. If you truly lose hope, most of the time, that's when you end your life. That's when you take a semi-automatic rifle and go to a school. If you have no hope, then there's no telling what you'll do. Most people have hope. The only thing that is at issue is, what is it in? What do people place their hope in? Can the things that you're hoping in sustain the weight of your need and expectation? That's the only thing that's in play here. Anna had genuine hope. Let's take a look at why. Part of her hope was she had a glow. That's another way of saying she had passion. We see that she didn't depart from the temple worshiping and fasting, and, excuse me, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. This lady was at the temple as often as she could be. Why? Have you ever noticed that with most people getting them to church, it's like pulling teeth? Why would she want to be here all the time? You know, one time when I was, many years ago when dinosaurs roamed the earth, I was young. And I used to be a youth pastor. And I had a bunch of kids in my youth group, and many of them hadn't been Christians for very long. And so they were really green and didn't really understand the things of Scripture, and they were very worldly in their mentality. And one time I was teaching a sermon, and I was talking about how important it is to be with other believers, to be in church, to be around where your faith can be built up and grow. She didn't see that priority. So she asked me one time, she said, do you really have to go to church to be a Christian? And that's a tough question. I had to think about that. Finally, I told her, no, actually, the Bible says we're saved by grace alone. You don't have to go to church to be a Christian, but if you really were a Christian, where else would you want to be? That's Anna. She had a glow. She had a passion. She wanted to be around where God was doing stuff. Why? Because that was her hope. That was what she was waiting for. Like Simeon, she was waiting for God to send the Savior, the Redeemer, the one that was going to rescue her people. Remember the times that she lived in. We talked about this last week. The Romans were in the city. The religious leaders were corrupt. Their political leaders were corrupt. There were foot soldiers marching through. They had no freedom. 
They couldn't do what they wanted. They were being taxed at an exorbitant rate. She was waiting for the deliverer to come to set her people free. Probably given the insight she had, along with Simeon, she also recognized that her people needed to be set free, not from just the outside things, but from the inside chains, the sin and the bondage. And so she had a passion. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. For those who are seeking the Lord, like Anna, God will fill your heart with light. He'll make your heart glow. What makes your heart glow? You ever wonder that? What makes your heart glow? I've seen people's hearts glow for a lot of different reasons. A lot of people's hearts glow when they see a big stack of cash. A lot of people's hearts glow when they get a promotion, when their business grows. A lot of people's hearts glow when they're popular and everybody loves them. Some people's hearts glow when they're watching a sporting event and their team wins. Some people's hearts glow when they're on vacation. There's a lot of things that light up people's hearts. What lights up yours? Because whatever it is, whatever it is you're passionate about and get excited about, that's where your hope is. And if your hope's in the wrong thing, it's going to let you down every time. The next thing is she had a grasp. She had a perception. We're told that when she came up, she began to give thanks to God for the child. She recognized the child and was thankful. She wanted to know God's will. She wanted to know what God was doing. We're told in Ephesians 3, 17 through 19, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may fill with all the fullness, you may be filled with all the fullness of God. What do you think about? What do you focus on? What are you fixated by? What makes you really, really Get your mind buzzing. That's the things that you're looking for. That's where your hope is. And then lastly, she was focused on the good news. She was proclaiming what she discovered. We're told that she began to speak of him to everyone who was waiting for the redemption. She wanted to share the hope she had. Now that she had hope, she wanted to share it. Isaiah 40 verse 9 says, Go up on a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem. Herald of good news, lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. All right. That's what hope looks like. That's why Christmas is still relevant, because it is our hope. How do we enter into it? It's one thing to know about hope. It's another thing to have hope. And I find you can always tell the difference. I'm going to tell you a final story. This was from... Uh, a pastor named Lee Eklov. He's from Village Church in Lake Forest, Illinois. He told a story about a guy that was in his congregation who was in the Air Force. He says, Among the many wonderful congregants I, I serve in our church is a former Air Force pilot by the name of Robbie Robbins who flew and fought in the first Iraqi war from 1990 to 1991, Operation Desert Storm. He says... Once the hostilities ended, following a long and difficult deployment, Robbie and his fatigued crew were relieved to be pulled from action and demobilized because they had already flown over 300 missions. 
Unfortunately, the orders had come down so abruptly that there wasn't much time for contacting anyone back home to let them know. Nevertheless, he and his crew were so eager to see their families that they flew back nonstop from Riyadh, Saudi Arabia to Hanscom Air Force Base in Bedford, Massachusetts. That's over 6,300 miles. And then once they landed, they got in a car and they drove all night to get to western Pennsylvania, where most of them were living at the time. Much to their surprise, when Robin's buddy dropped him off at his house, just after dawn, there was a gigantic banner hung across the driveway that read, Welcome home, Dad. How on earth could they have known, he thought to himself. No one had been able to make a call, nor had anyone anticipated being sent home so quickly. He got out of the car, entered the house, and as he walked in, he saw his children, half-dressed for school, who excitedly began yelling, Daddy's home! Daddy's home! With that, his wife Susan suddenly appeared, looking like a vision, hair fixed, makeup on, wearing a crisp yellow dress. He looked at her with bewilderment and said, How did you know? I didn't, she said through tears. But I knew the war was over. I knew you'd be coming home eventually, and probably with little notice. So we all decided that we were just going to stay ready for you every day until you got here. Dear ones, that is the essence of hope. That is what Simeon was doing. That is what Anna was doing. I hope that's what you're doing. You've got the rest of the day to think about it. I pray you do have the right hope and that if you don't, you'll think about that and try to ask yourself, maybe I need to rethink some things. But my prayer is that God would bless you today with joy, with peace, with light, and with hope as you celebrate the birth of the most important person who ever came to this place. Father, thank you for your word, which is truth. Thank you for the time that we have to celebrate the birth of Christ. May we do so, Lord, in proper fashion. And may you fill each person here with the knowledge of who Christ really is and the transformation that only can result from it. We pray our hope would be solid. We pray that we would be sharing it. We pray we would be living it out. Thank you for your love and for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.